Hi, this is Carrie Ann Eber, Poetry and Interview Editor. And I'm Stephen Scott Whitaker, co-editor of the Broadkill Review, and this is the Broadkill Review podcast for spring 2021. Cameron Morse is going to read three poems, Stiletto, followed by Vector, followed by Magnetic Moments. Stiletto from Stylus Writing utensil once applied to wax tablet incises, its blunt end rubs out an endless erasure. Gary Snyder The human psyche remains at best a kind of paleolithic thing. Electric fish jam each other's signals. Mating calls sing electric songs. When Dylan goes electric, the guitar vibrates a frequency of sex. The forensic scientist can't quite make out the letter tops of Tattler. Will Graham's home address. Foot soles of elephants say hello in another sensory domain. Other vocabs from Brett Ratner's Red Dragon, Sundowner, Chinwag, Gumshoe. Vector. We cross the tracks. Reminded of the cross, shale sliding us down into the understory of rusty thorns. A quantity possessing both direction and magnitude, represented by an arrow, by a sear vine in sunlight, climbing the shattered green, Pieces of a toy assault rifle. Dog collars tinkle in the blinding light. Paw prints in the sidewalk. Wet cement down to the toenails. Clickety-clack. Movable type. Woodsy interstice. Train tracks between the backyards where Theo forages a railroad spike, a strike-through, transgression. Each time we pass, the same white, cotton, yellow grass bird's nest, Theo collects another plastic shard of the pellet gun, as if gluing it back at home, resurrecting the original Impulse. Magnetic Moments The survivor tree holds the sheets of enforceable statements to the refrigerator door. I'll be glad to discuss this with you as soon as the arguing stops. Leaky pineapple blood vessels and hell 
I'd settle for a cup of salami and cheese cubes from the hospital cafeteria. GBM survivors to thrivers. New, new growth not encased runs too deep for full removal. My 16-year-old son, my baby but forceful adult enough to make some decisions. Surviving a downfall of volcanic debris, the tree transported back to 9-11. Bad enough to have to watch rhinoceros beetles wrestle for mating rights from a movie studio in Cotswolds. The inverted tree stands upside down in a field of magnets. This occurs to me too late to make a difference. In Stiletto, Morse incorporates so many pop culture references. Carrie, how do the cultural allusions inform the poem's emotional arc or landscape? Okay, so the emotional arc starts with the title, and right away we're confronted with danger and excitement. Stiletto's knife or dagger that doesn't really have any practical purpose other than stabbing. And it also calls to mind stiletto heels, which is super sexy, super exciting. Um, but they're also these solid objects, something concrete. So the landscape of the poem goes from this concrete object to something quite abstract. And the reader is asked to engage with the ending of the poem very intuitively. First, we learn the etymology of the word stiletto from stylus, writing utensil once applied to wax, tablet, incises, its blunt end, rubs out an endless erasure. Um, this sets the reader up for the emotional landscape of going from the concrete to the abstract. It's kind of a rubbing out erasure um, of our logical thinking. So then we have the mention of Gary Snyder, a beat poet who's also sort of super zen and um where the stage is set with the his quote the human psyche remains at best a kind of paleolithic thing so it implies that human thinking is caveman thinking and there's a lot of room for evolution here and so this is what the poet's doing with that pop culture reference he's carrying the reader from a concrete type of thinking to a more intuitive and sensory space um when Dylan goes electric, this is when Bob Dylan at the Newport Folk Festival decided not to do his regular acoustic folk music set, and he used electric guitar, and the audience actually booed him. And in the poem, it says his guitar vibrates a frequency of sex. So this is going from um, sort of the logical to the sensory in a way, and he got booed. So, um, you know, the audience didn't like that evolution for him. And then we we move to um, the allusion to Red Dragon, the film by Brett Ratner, um, where the experts can't figure out the clues in the case that Will Graham is investigating. And they they don't see they're missing right, what's right there. They're not using their intuition. Um it's also harkens back to the title stiletto. That's what Hannibal Lecter uses to stab Will Graham in the opening scenes, which sets us up for the rest of the 
or the rest of the movie. Um, and then the poet also refers to the animal world, which seems a little more evolved as far as intuition than humans. So fish are jamming each other's signals. Elephants are using their sensory domains to communicate, which is fascinating that elephants can actually understand other elephants miles away by how they step. Um, so that that reference to the elephants brings the reader to the end of the poem with kind of a mystery posed by the poet. So there's three words from the movie, sundowner, chinwag, and gumshoe. And we've been taken from this journey, which we totally understand. And we have all the information about the stiletto at the beginning to, um, to this more intuitive place. And we're left to translate what these three words really mean to the poem. We, in effect, become Will Graham trying to intuit the truth. So, Scott, I'll leave that up to the readers because I still haven't come to terms with it. So maybe I'm just still in the concrete domain a little bit too much. So, readers, it's all up to you. In Vector, Cameron uses spatial and religious language. But what do you make of the references to writing, the understory, clickety-clack movable type, strike through? Well, in Vector... Cameron Morse uses spatial and religious language that kind of sets up the narrative content of the poem, if you will. But there's these references to writing, references to typing that have these wonderful sounds. So the narrative power of the poem lies in its juxtaposition of Christ and the pellet gun, the derelict bird nest pulling emotional resonance from these images throughout the poem. Musically, the poem is sharp and brittle. Um, there are many edges to be cut on these words. Understory is a less sharp word, but it is also an ionic word. Um, all of the syllables are long syllables. All four syllables of understory are equally stressed, providing a repeated beat. Movable type has that sharp type at the end of that phrase. And strike through and clickety-clack are, are very pointed words in terms of sound. Strike through. Through less so than strike. But clickety-clack is sharp all the way through. So all of these words that the poet has chosen reflect the content of the poem with a shattered BB gun. They also are certainly a meta-reference to the poet's own composition and the act and process of writing. So, Scott, can you talk about the sectioned form of these poems? What is accomplished here? What effect does it have on the reader? Well, poems with many sections or movements, particularly in this case with Morse, can be expansive and minimalist at the same time. I mean, that's what's rather appealing about them. Movements can allow for emotions to be restricted or allowed to grow and be a little more expansive and have more breadth. In Vector, for example, Morse alludes to, to Christ and then juxtaposes it with a smashed BB gun, a pellet gun. Uh, 
Um, which is so very American, the smashed BB gun, Christ, guns in Christ. And, you know, the poem's exigency, which is all about, you know, can we repair what we have destroyed, kind of echoes with that form. It's allowed to resonate from one section to the next. You know, in Stiletto, the, the poem's first movement ends on the word erasure, a meta-reflection on what the poet is working on in these poems. And Stiletto relies on collage and the reader's expectations with regards to Bob Dylan, Dylan going electric, Hannibal Lecter, the Brett Radner movie, and then sonically, these sectional poems, particularly Stiletto offer a real staccato rhythm that's driven by these alliterative flourishes versus rhyme, which you might find in more traditional form poems. And I think the effect is that slows action down while at the same time expanding both the visual and the emotional range that's happening in the poems. In Vector, a shattered toy plastic gun is an essential part of the poem's plot narrative. Is it a toy gun, or is it the fact that it's shattered that is important to the overall arc of the poem? So we learn early on uh, where this poem takes place and that there are at least two people involved. We cross the tracks is the first line. So that's pretty specific. We also learn that vector means a quantity possessing both direction and magnitude. The gun is essential to the narrative, I think. It seems to be the understory mentioned in the first section. To me, the most essential detail, though, concerning this gun is the fact that it's transformed in a sense as the poem progresses. It's almost mollified. At first, the vine climbs the shattered green pieces of a toy assault rifle. Later on, the speaker says, Theo collects another plastic shard of the pellet gun. So shattered and assault rifle are such violent words, so charged. I imagine Theo is a young boy. I don't know, his, his age isn't said. But the juxtaposition here of this young boy and with these words, shattered, assault rifle, is so shocking. And then the descriptive language changes. Shattered green pieces change to plastic shard. Assault rifle changes to pellet gun, which seems a little more fitting for a young boy. It makes me think of um, when my son loves to play paintball with his cousins, you know, in the backyard. Um, the language isn't as charged with violence there. In the end, the resolution of the gun narrative is a totally loaded statement, as if gluing it back at home, resurrecting the original impulse. The boy is faced with a pretty strong desire to reconstitute this object full of deadly possibilities. But in the poem, he doesn't actually do that. He's still gathering the pieces as the speaker of the poem is sort of contemplating the why of it all. Um, so at the end, it says, every time we pass the same white cotton, yellow grass bird's nest, Theo collects another plastic shard of the pellet gun as if gluing it back at home, resurrecting the original impulse. Isn't it interesting that Theo bypasses the bird's nest in order to collect more pieces of this gun? So his natural surroundings aren't as compelling to him as the gun. He also forged a railroad spike. 
he's drawn to the power of these objects, which goes back to the title vector and the direction and magnitude that, as the poet says, is represented by an arrow. The arrow points at human nature and what one will potentially do with that original impulse. Though the language of the gun is mollified, the original impulse is still latent, and it's anyone's guess what Theo will do with that, which is a pretty on-point statement about gun violence versus sensible gun ownership. So Scott, I'm struck by this stanza in Magnetic Moments. Leaky pineapple blood, vessels, and hell. It seems there are several different ways to read it. Can you talk about Cameron's line breaks and how they work in this poem? Magnetic Moments begins as very much a poem about the family refrigerator. You know, it begins with food spillage that has grown a body and a personality, the pineapple and the blood. Where did the blood come from? Is it ketchup? Is it from leftovers? What's going on here? In this image goes to create the ethos of the poem or of the family that's in the poem. Who's going to clean this up? Why hasn't anyone cleaned it up? And as the reader moves along in the poem, and we move to a hospital, and we later move into other trauma, we realize why no one has cleaned it up. This family is in crisis. In terms of line breaks, Morse favors short lines that slow the reader down, which is very effective for poems that rely on snapshot imagery. Consider Eastern forms, the haiku, as your simplest example. Every inward has power. Sometimes in these poems, we find that individual lines will resonate as almost its own little poem, or sometimes even an individual stanza will stand out to the reader with a little more power. That is one of the benefits of using short lines broken into tiny little stanzas that can happen and that can rise up you kind of almost get a relief poem a second poem within the poem that kind of rises out of the language for readers to interact with that's where a lot of the power comes from consider in moments we're talking about a refrigerator and then finally the poet gets to cubes have to be cut and we start moving into the hospital, and it's an interesting beginning of the line. Cubes, cut is the N word. And of course, people are admitted to hospitals because they've been cut up. And cubes are manufactured. They have to be cut into place. To So that's where some of the power lies in these short line breaks. In magnetic moments, uh, the tree is an extended metaphor throughout the poem. Unpack the tree and its growth for us, if you will, Carrie. So the survivor tree is a calorie pear tree found under ash and debris at the World Trade Center one month after the 9-11 attack. It was found barely alive and transported to the Bronx for a little TLC, then transported back to Ground Zero several years later, and no one really thought it would survive. So the metaphor of the tree represents the teenage son of the speaker, but also, I think, the parental struggle of control and wanting everything to be all right in the face of this huge diagnosis that happens. Um, the tree makes an appearance in the poem at the beginning as a sort of souvenir magnet that we all buy, you know, at uh, different places. So it's holding the enforceable statements sheet on the refrigerator. So we know that there's behavior issues at play here and arguments in need of some strategies were immediately introduced 
to the parent-child dynamic by one of those enforceable statements. I'll be glad to discuss this with you as soon as the arguing stops. So in the second section, we learn that the speaker is sort of longing for a cup of salami and cheese cubes from the hospital cafeteria. So we know that the speaker is visiting someone and doesn't want to leave the hospital room, I think, for fear of missing something. Since the speaker's a parent, that seems consistent with the obsessive worry we sometimes go through when something is happening to our babies. Uh, the third section begins GBM survivors to thrivers. Uh, the reader is given some insight into why there's a hospital stay now. So GBM is geoblastoma multiform, which is an aggressive form of cancer that begins in the brain. Talk about a tragedy, you know. We're brought back to the tree by the word survivors. And then the poet goes on to note, new growth, not encased, runs too deep for full removal. 16-year-old son, my baby, but forceful, adult enough to make some decisions. This speaks to the parental inclination to protect. The survivor trees encased roots were protection when it needed to have that extra TLC and be moved away from the World Trade Center and then back to ground zero. But the teenager has grown other roots that the parent can't control. And these roots manifest as decisions. We as readers are not privy to the decisions or the outcome of those decisions, but the ending of the poem kind of implies that the outcome wasn't all that positive, or at least the parent would have changed something if they could, because the parent speaker of the poem says, the inverted tree stands upside down in a field of magnets. This occurs to me too late to make a difference. They're blaming themselves, I think, as parents often do. The field of magnets are a bunch of decisions, you know, and this one specific magnet of the tree upside down went unnoticed. So here, the tree becomes the symbol of the speaker's failure to notice this tiny little detail that may have made a difference. If only they had turned the tree magnet right side up it would have made everything all right. But we as readers know that this kind of parental magic is just wishful thinking. Cameron Morse lives with his wife, Lily, and two children in Independence, Missouri. His poems have been published in numerous magazines, including New Letters, Bridge 8, Portland Review, and South Dakota Review. His first collection, Fall Risk, won Glasslier Press's 2018 Best Book Award. His latest is Far Other by Woodley Press, 2020. He holds an MFA from the University of Kansas City, Missouri, and serves as Senior Reviews Editor at Harbor Review and Poetry Editor at Harbor Editions. For more information, check out his Facebook page or website, CameronMorsePoems.wordpress.com. The Broadkill Review is an imprint of Broadkill River Press, founded by Jamie Brown. The Broadkill Review is a quarterly literary journal and is part of a special digital collection at Delaware Public Libraries. Submissions are open. Visit us at broadkillreview.com.